Good morning. Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And as you're doing that, I would like to tell you a story. It's an old Native American story that tells of a brave who found an eagle egg. Now, not being able to return this egg to the nest because it was too high up, he put the nest in the, he put the egg in the nest of a prairie chicken. Now, the hen sat on this eagle's egg along with her own, and soon the little eaglet was born and hatched alongside the prairie chicken. All his life, this eagle, thinking he was a prairie chicken, did what the other chickens did. He clucked and he cackled and he scratched in the dirt for seeds and he ate insects. He, th- he flew just with uh, a brief thrashing of his wings, no more than a few feet off the ground. After all, that's what prairie chickens do, and that's what he saw everyone doing. And that's what I'm supposed to do. Years passed, and the eagle grew old. One day he saw this magnificent bird above him in the cloudless sky, just hanging there gracefully, just moving on the wind and He said, what a beautiful bird that is. And he asked one of the chickens around him, what is it? And the chicken said, that's an eagle. He's the chief of the birds. But don't even think about it. You could never be like him. So the eagle never did. And he died thinking he was a prairie chicken. This story points us to a tragic truth that happens in our lives. You see, many people thought, uh, though they're meant to fly like eagles, we live like prairie chickens. We scratch around in the dirt and we settle for mediocrity. We live shallow lives, thinking all the while that because everyone else is doing it, this must be the way that we are to live, with mediocrity. And in the same way, It's easy for the child of God to live like a child of the world, to live his or in her entire life under the sun, never above it, riveted to this humanistic um, horizontal that the world is living to. You see, as Christians, we have the ability to soar like an eagle, but what we do, we scratch around uh, like a prairie chicken. We, We get what we can, we live mediocre lives because that's what everyone else is doing. So far in the first nine chapters of Ecclesiastes, we've explored what Solomon has been trying to get across to us. And I'd like to sum up what Solomon has said in one sentence. People tend to live like prairie chickens. But the phrase that Solomon uses in prairie chickens, he calls it an under-the-sun existence. It's a life that's endless and meaningless and full of futility. And Solomon's conclusion so far is that this is the kind of lifestyle... Now, it may involve lots of wealth. It may involve education and relationships and, and pleasure and entertainment. This life might contain all those things, but in the end it's empty. It doesn't satisfy, it will never satisfy you, it lacks lacks substance, it lacks significance. And a life under the sun doesn't lead to anything of lasting value. You remember how Solomon started off his journal, Vanity of vanities, says the father, 
or says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Sure, there's plenty of activity, there's plenty of noise, there's plenty of involvement under the sun, but eventually it'll end up being a boring and monotonous cycle where people just go through the motion of living because everyone else is doing it. Verse 8 of that first chapter of Ecclesiastes says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon believes, and I agree, and he has shown us in these first nine chapters that within us there is an eagle heart saying, it's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to just be living under the sun without God. In each person, there is a longing for something more. In each person, there's a, there's a longing for something that really matters in their life. And that longing is filled with many things. But the true longing, the true thing that we should be seeking for is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But if we haven't done that, if we haven't found this true relationship, when we don't know where to find that, when we don't know how to soar like an eagle, when we're living under the sun, then despair will set in. There are multitudes of people throughout the world who live in a quiet desperation. Some of these people will seek death as an escape from this trap. Others try to anaesthetize themselves using alcohol or drugs or even sex. Others attempt to have a more intense prairie chicken existence. They try to fill their lives with more activities and more relationships, more entertainment, more sensual pleasure, to fill this longing that they know they have. And they hope, just maybe, happiness is just around the corner as they search these things. Some people have even found that having one million dollars doesn't make them happy, but for some reason they think two million will make them happy. So Solomon in his journal describes those who think this way. He has done for nine chapters. He has uh, described those who think these ways, that is that significance and happiness can be found under the sun, apart from God, He calls them fools. So what is a fool? Well, Solomon's dad, David, said in Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And so most of us here sitting here this morning will say, yeah, well, that's what a fool is. Someone who says there is no God, that's very foolish. But I want you to understand, in light of what we're going to do this morning, please understand that a believer can be foolish as well. I hope you understand that. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, you foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And then he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? When the Lord speaks to us, it's not, what we, it's not that we will study it and pass judgment on what God has said. He wants us to obey it, believe it or not, not just to read it. You also might remember from Matthew that the fool built his house upon the sand. And when all the trials and the troubles of life came upon this person, this one that the Lord calls a fool, everything just collapsed because the foundation was just sand. And then he said, the wise are those who build their foundation on the rock, so that when the troubles of life come upon you, when everything hits you, you will be steadfast because you have built your foundation on the rock. So what is your foundation as you sit here this morning? Is it rock? Is it sand? Do you feel like a bit of a prairie chicken, just mediocre life, or do you feel like an eagle who is soaring? Now, as we get into the text, I want you to understand here that this part of Ecclesiastes is not a carefully constructed argument like Paul's would be. Now, we've been going through one at Second Corinthians with Pastor, and that's a well-constructed argument. Paul always well-constructs it. Ecclesiastes is not a well-constructed argument. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is short stories, case studies, proverbs, all chucked in together which at times can look like a lack of organisation. I'm hoping to hope to bring some organisation to it so we can see what Solomon is telling us. Because through it all, Solomon makes a clear contrast between two different ways to live. He's going to show us the wise way and the foolish way, the eagle way or the prairie chicken way, the rock way, or the sand way. And so as we work through this passage, the question to ask, that I hope to be asking, and you asking yourself, am I living wisely, or am I living foolishly, as I go through this day? Let me tell you, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I don't have to go any further, I can tell you you're living foolishly, because the scriptures say, the fool is one who says there is no God. But for us as born-again believers, are we living our life like we uh, just mediocrely in, in living around it? Are we clucking? Are we scratching at the surface? This is what we're going to find out. And to begin with, as we turn to chapter 10, verse 1, there's an elegant bottle of costly perfume, but it's got flies in it. Chapter 10, verse 1, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weighter than wisdom, weightier than wisdom and honour. A comparison, we've seen comparisons from Solomon before. He makes a comparison when he says a dead fly makes a perfumer's oil stink. Perfumer's oil is, is very nice. Smells lovely. You ladies wear perfume all the time. But it says dead fly and it will make it stink. And then he says the comparison is 
just a little bit of foolishness, the size of a fly, is weightier than wisdom and honour. Basically, Solomon's vivid, it's vivid way of illustrating a tiny bit of foolishness, the size of a fly, if you like, can destroy the powerful fragrance of a person's wisdom and honour. Now, you could be the most wise and honourable person around, but all it takes is one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, one angry outburst, and people are not going to look at your wisdom and honour because Solomon tells us the more weightier thing that people will see is your foolishness. No matter how small it is, as small as a fly. But that will be the thing that you will be known for <coughs> because it's weightier. Sometimes I think it's easier to make a stink than create sweetness. And that's our lives sometimes. The conclusion is logical. People's respect and confidence in you and your wisdom and your honour are hung on the thin wire of your ability not to be foolish, even a little bit. Because a dead fly gives perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Little folly... A little foolishness will outweigh everything else you've done before. It makes you think, doesn't it, that we can't let our guard down with wisdom and honour that we will have. It only takes one little thing that will outweigh all that has gone before. That's the first comparison that Solomon gives us. Then Solomon goes on to write another one. And it's between wise and foolish again. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. What is Solomon saying here, for goodness sake? Does it mean everyone that's left-handed is not wise, they're foolish? Now, we have to go back to the Hebrew culture. We have to understand that in Israel, the, the right hand was associated with strength, which saves and supports and protects. In fact, the, for instance, the right hand was used to convey blessing. When we see that in Genesis, when we went through it, when Jacob crossed his arm to place his right hand on Ephraim's head to give him the greater blessing. The right hand is associated with authority and that's why Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for each one of us. Psalm 16.8 says, The Lord is at my right hand. Psalm 121.5 adds that the Lord is your shade on your right hand. So the right hand is a picture in the Hebrew culture of protection and power and the very presence of God. Now given that background, it's not surprising that Matthew 25 says that the sheep will be on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. A wise, man heart, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right. But since the fool doesn't have wisdom in his heart, he gravitates to, what, to that which is wrong, the left, and he gets into trouble. Look at Ecclesiastes 2.14 again. Just go back a few chapters. It says, The wise man's eyes are in his head, 
but the fool walks in darkness. Which direction are you going in life? What is right and left to you? Right would be moving in the direction of discipleship. Left would be falling away spiritually. Are you drawing closer to the people of God or are you going off by yourself and not thinking that you need to come to church on a regular basis to to be with the people of God? Only a fool, having begun by the Spirit, is now trying to be perfected by the flesh. Are you building on sand or rock? Are you an eagle or a prairie chicken? Then in verse 3, Solomon says the fool is on the wrong road anyway. But sadly, this fool doesn't even realise it. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. The road here is not literally a highway, but the fool's metaphorically way of life. In other words, while living his life, the fool shows himself to be the fool. Solomon wrote about this in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 16. He said, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. So what's the application of these verses? Well, Solomon has been defining the difference between wisdom and folly so we can choose to live the right way. So we we can't be the kind of person who refuses to listen to uh, constructive criticism or ignores godly people who are trying to, to say things to them or erupts with anger every time something goes wrong. One fall of foolishness and everything else goes out the window. If you live that life of leading to the left, people will see you as a fool. We need to turn our hearts toward God and ask him for the grace to go the right way rather than the wrong way. His way rather than our own way. In these first three verses, Solomon has compared foolishness and wise living together to bring them into clear light. And so I asked this morning, which way do you consider yourself to be living? Are you living mediocrely as a chicken? Are you soaring with eagles? Are you building your life upon the sand? Are you building your life under the sun that everything in the, the world is, is all you want? Your houses or your, uh, your family, your jobs, whatever it may be. Is that what you're building your foundation on? And Solomon would say that's very foolish. The wise man walks to the right. So for these three verses, Solomon has been telling us how to avoid folly. But then the next few verses, he tells us how to respond to foolishness in the lives of others. He defined the difference between wisdom and folly. Now he gives us practical advice for dealing with those foolish people we meet in the world. I want to leave verse 4 for a minute and look at verse 5. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. 
Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Once again, Solomon's reporting what he'd seen. This time he offers an example of what he's been talking about in verse 1. A little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honour. In the words of Martin Luther, he said, Just as a dead fly... Just as dead flies ruin the best appointments, so it happens to the best of counsel in the state, in the senate, or in a war, along comes some wicked rascal and ruins everything. A little bit of foolishness is coming from this ruler. Now, unfortunately, there are many foolish people as rulers in exalted positions. Some are completely incompetent, others use their position for personal advantage, They're more interested in their status than any service they might give. And by the time that their foolishness is exposed, it's too late and the damage has been done. And afterwards, we always wonder, how did they get put in charge? And when foolish people get put into power, everything gets turned upside down. Solomon says in verse 5 that errors in leadership produce evil in society. And then he describes some of the bad things that can happen. For example, the rich sit in a low place in in verse 6. Simply saying that Solomon is saying that the people with financial resources to help don't have the power to use them because they sit in low places because the foolish are are leading. In verse 7 we see the social positions have been turned around. Slaves just didn't ride on horseback while their masters walked. It just didn't happen. But Solomon had seen it because when foolishness sits on the throne, everything is topsy-turvy. Now, it's not my place to say which political leaders are wise and which are foolish. But sometimes that's not necessary anyway because as Solomon says, the fool demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool anyway. But whenever we see the world turned upside down and whenever a society starts celebrating immorality, Whenever a society punishes righteousness, whenever a society denies the authority of God, you can be sure that foolishness is in control. So how should we respond to this foolishness, this foolishness in leadership? Well, that's why I want to go back to verse 4, because it may surprise you. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offence. The New King James says, for conciliation pacifies great offences. So rather than running away from tyranny, rather than taking the law into our own hands, rather than claiming that we have a right to be angry or saying that we don't have to obey this foolish government, Solomon is recommending a calm and quiet response that turns away wrath. This is indeed the biblical way to deal with fools, not by sharing in their foolishness, but by living out the character of Christ. One of my life proverbs is 15.1. I live by this. It's invaluable. It has been invaluable to me. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
The way to deal with this foolish, angry ruler is not to be intimidated by it or to respond in kind, but to keep calm. And this includes our workplace or our school, wherever we may be. Solomon says the wisest thing for us to do is remain in the situation. Staying calm is part of God's winning strategy for dealing with foolish anger. He says it'll it'll allay the problem. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Because if you think this is just for Solomon's time, let's have a look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to just spend a little bit of time reading a few verses in this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2, I start at 18. Oh, sorry, 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one who's in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You ever wondered what the will of God is? Well, there's lots of things, but here's one that's told you. For such is the will of God, that we submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he told the servants in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, to respect their masters, even if they were unjust. For this is the gracious thing to endure injustice. He told wives in 1 Peter 3, 1-2 to, to submit to their husbands even if they were unbelievers. The reason? So that by pure and respectful conduct they might win their husband's heart for Christ. Why should we keep serving people who make us suffer, who are foolish? Look at 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Angry rulers rose up against Christ, foolish men who treated him with angry contempt until finally they crucified him. Yet we know that Jesus refused to leave his place of service. He refused to fight anger with anger. Foolishness with foolishness. Instead, he calmly did the work that he was called to do. Look at 1 Peter 2.23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's a big call. To be able to keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously in all situations. And by our Lord's calm response, he nailed our sins to the cross. And now everyone who is forgiven is forgiven if we call upon his name. Including some of the men who crucified him. So who's the angry or foolish person in your life that you have to deal with as a ruler, as a leader? How are you going to respond? Well, the way to glorify God is by keeping the calm of Christ. We're going to now arrive at the last part of this passage. Very unusual, almost funny statements 
Verse 8, he who digs a pit may fall into it. Duh. And a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits logs may be endangered by them. What in the world are these statements saying to us? What is Solomon telling us? Well, frankly, if we fail to see the symbolism here, we're going to find ourselves woefully confused. So with that in mind, let's realise that what we have here is four dangerous situations. But fools don't see the dangers. In other words, what he's saying is that wisdom is skill for living. The wise see things as they are, like a, a soaring eagle would. But the foolish are trapped on the ground like the prairie chicken. Solomon is saying, in life you need to think before you act. It's alright to dig a pit. And the wise will do that, but they'll be careful about falling in. You can have incredible energy and perseverance. You can go out and dig this massive pit, but stay away from the edge or you might fall in. If you're clearing the stones from an old wall, an old wall be careful. All your strength just by pushing at it can get you killed, particularly if there's a red-bellied black snake on the other side of the wall. It's not enough to have energy to push the wall over. You better have wisdom to go with it. If you're an excavator, be careful when you cut out a piece of rock because it has to fall somewhere. Don't let it fall on your head. Be smart with your energy, diligence and talent. If you're cutting trees, the same advice. The tree has to fall somewhere, so be careful. I think I'd liken it to a phrase that I've heard many times. It's better to work smarter than harder. I think that's a phrase that I hear occasionally. Or you can put it another way. Wisdom thinks ahead before the fact. If you exercise wisdom, you will have success because that's backed up in verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So we need to prepare before we dig a hole to make sure that someone doesn't fall in it. I guess that's why the the orange things are around the hole when they dig a hole. Wisdom says, let's put up a barrier. But as I read verse 10, I couldn't think of help but think about Sven and Ollie. Now Sven and Ollie are logging out in the woods and Sven gives Ollie a chainsaw and tells him, you go over there and cut down those trees, I'll go over here and cut down those ones over here. At the end of the day, Sven was always looking over and Ollie seemed to be working hard enough, but he'd only cut down three trees by the end of the day. When Sven asked him why, Ollie responded that the saw just seemed to be blunt, it just didn't seemed to be cutting properly. So Sven took the saw off him and pulled the cord and it started okay and Ollie said, what's that noise? (laughs) Having the wisdom to sharpen your axe is what he's talking about. And if you do have that wisdom, Solomon says you're going to make your work a lot easier. Stop and sharpen the axe or at least work out how the chainsaw works. But you get the point. As I said, it's typically better to work smarter instead of harder. And so the smarter way of working is to check that the saw is sharp 
and wisdom has the advantage of giving success. But again, how do we get wisdom? How do we get this success? You know, it's simple. <laughs> I know it sounds strange, simple. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. And he will give it to you liberally. He will give it to you generously. And he won't find a fault with you. He will give it to you. He's not like someone who, who's just going to keep it from you and play hide and seek. You ask for it, he will give it to you generously. But like we've seen all the way through Ecclesiastes, do not equate success or wisdom with he who has the most toys wins. That's not how it works. Things are not what God promises you. You might be surprised to know that sometimes faithful Christians who are very wise don't make much money. You might be surprised to see that Christians who are wise don't get promoted at work. From a worldly viewpoint, they're not very successful. But I want you to remember, the one who truly determines success is God. Those of us who will one day hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, are far more successful than all the rich and famous celebrities put together whose so-called accomplishments will mean nothing in the end. They are folly. They are vanity. And then Solomon closes with verse 11. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. This is a, a great proverb when you really sink your teeth into it. You've probably seen a snake charmer on, te- on television. I haven't seen one up front, but I've up close, but I have seen a snake charmer with his uh, flute raising the snake out of a, out of a basket. And I'm sure it takes quite a talent to be able to charm that snake. But the proverb says if the snake charmer is getting ready to play his flute and the snake crawls out of the basket and bites one of the audiences on the leg, it's very doubtful that the charmer is going to get paid for that. You see, the charmer had the skill, but he didn't use it. The prairie chicken was in fact an eagle, but he didn't use it. And Solomon's point is that we need to use the wisdom we have, otherwise we may as well not have the wisdom because it's of no service to you. The snake charmer, as it says in verse 10, if the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. The charmer might be wise in being able to do that, but there's no profit in it if he doesn't use it. It's not enough to know how to charm the serpent. You have to actually apply that knowledge before it bites someone. So let's apply this proverb to the idea of our life. You probably have many areas in life where you know the right things to do. You know what you should be doing. You could give a a wonderful list of principles for for marriage, biblical marriage or biblical parenting or money management or sexuality, or friendships, or work. You know all the right answers in your head. You have the wisdom for success, as Solomon says. But I want us to understand from the snake charmer that that's not the most important part of knowing. If the serpent bites, the person who knows how to charm a snake is no better off than the one who doesn't. So the important thing is not just that you have wisdom, but you actually use it. 
in marriage, in parenting, and so on. You have to use your wisdom. It's not just a matter of knowing it. Our churches are filled with Bible-believing people who have mangled their lives because they were bitten by the snake. They didn't put to use their wisdom first. What about us as we sit here this morning? Are there areas in our lives that we know that the right thing to do? We know it in our head, we know it from the scriptures, but we just aren't doing it. As I said earlier, when the Lord speaks, it's not so that we can just study it and have Bible studies and devotions and anything like that. When God speaks through his word, we're to obey it. Not just to study it, not just to pass judgment on it and say, oh, this is a good word, but to obey it, to do it. And so as someone's mentioned this morning, either Peter or Jeff, I can't remember, are you reading the Bible and having a quiet time with the Lord? Are you obeying what the Lord said? If you're not reading the Bible, then you don't know what to obey anyway. Is your marriage biblical? Are you praying to the Lord? Are you using your money wisely to fulfil the Lord's calling on your life? If the answer to any of these questions is no, then you need to put the wisdom that you do have, that you know how to use, into practice. Again, think of the snake charmer. He knew how to do it, but the snake bit before he could do anything. So I have a question for you today. Are you soaring like an eagle or are you living like a prairie chicken? So I'm convinced of these three things. The first one, as a human being made in the image of God, the Lord wants us to soar like an eagle. The second thing I'm convinced of is that though you may be happy living like a prairie chicken right now, that happiness will not last. One day you will wake up and you'll realise that the things which seem important today were really very empty and insignificant in the scheme of life. And thirdly, if you want to soar like an eagle, if you want to trust in the Lord and do all that he says, if you want to obtain a realistic perspective on life, if you want to experience true joy and true fulfilment, it is possible. That's the third thing I believe. It is possible. You don't have to live like a prairie chicken. You don't have to be content with mediocrity. You don't have to just do the things because that's what everyone else around you is doing. How can you escape that type of life? Well, you ask the Lord for the grace to stop worrying about what everyone else is doing and thinking. Read his word. Trust him. Follow him. When you next time see an eagle soaring against a blue sky, I want you to remember that by God's grace that can be you. Not literally, but certainly figuratively. You can soar as God intended us to soar. He didn't intend us to be mediocrity. He intended us to have life and life in its fullness. And I want you to remember the marvellous promise the Lord gives in Isaiah 40. 30 to 31. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's us. Wait upon the Lord and he will renew your strength. May our hope be in the Lord each and every day. May our strength be his. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your servant Solomon who has put together a journal that reminds us over and over again of the folly of foolishness against wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that such a small piece of foolishness can outweigh honour. We thank you, Lord, that we can remember these things. We can thank you that we are given a, a way of facing the foolishness of our rulers. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this time together. I thank you that, Father, this is your living word and that the Spirit of God may have taken this word and used it for whatever purpose in each of our lives. But the very purpose is that we may grow closer to being like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your desire, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to do that. Amen.